I think the biggest thing as a young coach, you know, you think you got all the answers. There's a great line. It says, you know, the rookie sees the answers. The veteran sees the complexities, but the master sees the simplicity. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former Seton Hall and Manhattan College head coach and current international and professional coach, Bobby Gonzalez. Coach Gonzalez is here today to discuss evaluating talent and finding fit, the philosophies and key tenets of his full court pressure defensive system, and we talk baseline out of bounds plays, post moves, and watching film during a new segment of Over or Under. Listeners of the podcast can now receive 10% off a membership to Slapping Glass Plus, which includes access to SGTV's 300 video archive of European, NBA, and college breakdowns, as well as the Sunday morning newsletter and more. Visit slappingglass.com and enter SG10. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Bobby Gonzalez. Coach, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us this morning. We're really excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. Like I said, you know, you guys are great. I think you're doing a heck of a job, really getting a great reputation among the coaching community. You know, I picked up just some great X's and O basketball stuff from you guys with the international game, college, teams I coached against, and you use such a wide variety of coaches. It's great. I've been impressed. So, you know, excited to be here. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Coach, we're excited to dive into a ton of stuff today, but we want to start with something that I know is right in your wheelhouse and something you've been known for throughout your career at all the various levels, and that's evaluating talent, evaluating players and their skill sets, and then you know having the ability to see ahead as to where they would fit within an organization. So I want to start there with how someone like yourself goes about evaluating players and talent. I think one of the things you know I learned through the years, and a quick shout out to Mr. Garfinkel from Five Star Camp, who helped start one of the legendary high school gurus, unfortunately, also just passed away, Tom Kachowski, who many people know, was a gentleman and you know did the HSBI report. Being around Garf in the five-star camp, Rick Pitino, John Calipari, Hubie Brown, so many great coaches came from that camp. When I first got going, I learned, we used to have conversations, and Garf used to say to me, and I agree with him, that evaluating players is kind of a learned skill. It's like ball handling, passing, shooting. It's not innate, you know, like you have to work at it. And I also think that there's not a correlation really with... I've seen some guys who are great X's and O's or great coaches, and maybe they're not such great Italian evaluators. What happened for me was I started at the high school and college, you know, the lower level. And I think that's where, you know, you really learn what to pick up. What do you look for in players about upside and potential and work ethic and intangible things that you can't put a number on or statistics and things like that. I think as a high school evaluator, you know, it's a little easier when you're looking for players. You know, you look at the physical, you know, how big, how strong. The skill level, of course, you know, ball handling, shooting, and then the mental, you know, the intangibles. Is he coachable? What is his attitude? And then I think it becomes a little more personal. You know, like I used to love, you know, toughness and quickness because of the way we played up tempo, style of play. And skill level, of course, is always big, every level, D3, D2, D1. You know, I used to care a lot about does he fit in our system? Can I coach him? Would he fit for me? And and I just knew that I wasn't a good marriage with a guy that, you know, if we got to rip him out of bed in the morning to go to player development or weights or 
It's probably not going to be a good match. I wanted guys that were committed, loved the game, had passion. And then the last thing was, and I said this to you the other day, Dan, one of the big things that I think that gets lost in evaluating is I think guys have to trust their own heart and their own instincts once they've done it for enough years and they have some experience and they learn through trial and error and they've made some mistakes because, because again, nobody's perfect. There's some fickleness to this. You know, even the NBA guys have studied for nine months could make a mistake or project a guy and they end up being wrong or it's not as good as they thought. And there's an old saying out there. It's not the guys you get. It's the guys you get who can't play, you know? So like <laughs> now in the NBA, you can cut guys and trade guys. So it's a little easier, but you know, as you know, Dan, you're a college guy. It's harder when you, you, you recruit a guy in college and you're wrong about him. It takes a little longer. You know, I had a rule, you know, if I go see a guy play and I'm excited about him, that meant a lot to me, you know, no matter who offered him a scholarship, no matter where he was ranked or rated. And I thought that was a big deal that you yourself personally have to be excited about. It. You know, you go to the next level, the NBA level, there's a different set of things. They look for, you know, positional size, a skill that translates. You know, I look back at a guy like Kyle Korver who made it from the second round, big wing was from Creighton. A lot of guys missed on him. He's kind of slow, but he could really shoot. And the NBA sometimes is very good at identifying is that skill translate to the NBA, maybe a great rebounder, or does he do one thing? We can put him in a game and he could do that for us, you know, at the next level. There's four major things, I guess, you know, is he a fringe guy? Is he a rotation player? Is he a starter? Can he be an all-star? And I think today's game, Dan and, and Pat, we all know where it's going. It's so much about positionless basketball, shooting threes, being versatile. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see coaches make? And how much does their own personal bias affect their evaluating process? That's an excellent question. I, when I look back, I can remember, first of all, you know, guys at the college level, for whatever reason, maybe they don't have a strong enough conviction and they want to know all the time, you know, who offered them before they offer them. And if they say, okay, well, Villanova offered them, we'll offer them, you know. Or they'll say, uh, not only who offered him, who's recruiting him, but where's he rated or ranked? You know, the numbers, you know, if a guy is not on a radar somewhere, they think, well, it's too good to be true. You know, I can't believe my eyes. Those are some of the mistakes that I saw. I thought a lot of guys made, and it's easy to do because you're human. You yeah. tend to go with the cattle theory. You need somebody to help you with your conviction, you know, to confirm what you think you believe. But when I think back, I think one of the mistakes I learned from was, you know, sometimes I think you do get caught up in the mysticalness of your own career. You know, we had great success at Manhattan and then I went to Seton Hall and, you know, you do have to adjust, you know, adaptability, bigger league, better coaches, harder, higher skill level, more pros. So I think what happens is I was a little impatient and I think the mistake I made was you can never forget, you know, coach the person first and the player second. So I kind of got away from a little bit of that one-on-one, -on -one, really getting to know the kid's background, getting to know his intangibles, where he's from, his family, what does he like? You know, you got to spend more time talking with the player instead of talking to the player. And so I think when I look back, I remember towards the end of my college career, I think I made some mistakes about being impatient mm. and I got away a little bit from my culture. Coach, I'd like to go back to something you said just a little bit ago having to do with positionless players. And then also on the other side of it, specialization. You know, I know that you've worked with a number of players over the years and are currently now that guys that are trying to find their way onto an NBA roster some way, somehow. And you mentioned how these NBA, they look at them in these four different categories. How do you help guys obviously be able to do multiple things on the floor, but then also hone in on specializing on a couple of things that will get them onto a roster and get them onto the floor. 
Dan, again, excellent. You guys got great questions. I can see why you get guys on your show that are above Thank my you. pay. And I think it's a great question, Dan. One of the things I think I try to look at and try to tell guys is think about if an NBA team comes and a GM or whatever, and they're going to try to invest money besides the background stuff on the intangibles, you know, what kind of person is he, you know, you know, is there a drug problem or drinking problem, you know, the typical basic stuff. Does he show up? You know, what kind of person? Of course, they're going to do that. But what I try to talk about with guys on the basketball court is, you know, how do you separate yourself from all these other guys at the physical and the talent level and the athleticism is all pretty close. And one of the things I try to push is that I think offensively, it's really important to push footwork. I think a footwork is missed through college or even sometimes internationally. And I think what happens is if guys can really get better and show that they have certain fundamental footwork stuff down, can turn the head of certain coaches or GMs or people that look for something even like your lateral quickness or changing ends of the floor from offense to defense very quickly. So I talk to guys about the small minutiae part of the game, and I think footwork's a big deal. You know, two-foot power stops, doing layups off, you know, different feet, you know, one foot, you know, the teardrop. The NBA game is, as you know, it's so much faster than the college game and I think even international. And so what I try to tell guys is, first of all, the conditioning aspect, and you're going to go up a level in terms of physicalness. You're going to go up a level in terms of the speed of the game. And so on offense, I think you really got to try to work on footwork type things. And then I think defensively, they want to know, can you guard your position? And that's another big thing. I've known some really good offensive players that, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't get drafted and they got a couple 10 days and they didn't make it. And I would go back to guys and say, you know, I thought he was an NBA guy, man. What, you know, what happened? Why has he been overseas for 10 years and never really got that, never stayed in the league? And, and guys would say to me, Bobby, he can score or he can do this or he can do that. But, you know, he can't guard his position. And, you know, guys just don't want to play five on four. They don't want to play five on four defensively. And they don't want to play five on four offensively, which is the shooting part. You know, if, <laughs> right. if the defense is waiting in the lane for him and he can't hit the water from the boat, you know, it's going to be hard for him to make it. So, you no, know, of course, you know, you talk to guys about working on their shooting. But defensively, I would always talk to guys a lot about closeout drills and guarding the ball. Because not that you don't have to know defense off the ball and all that stuff you do, but I feel like that's stuff that coaches maybe can work with and help you on your rotation or shell drill. Yeah. But if you can't guard your man with the ball or you can't close out and things like that, it's going to be hard. I'd like to go back to evaluating intangibles. Yes. And I guess you've mentioned it before the conversations you have with these guys. And I don't know if the right word is tricks, but when you're having these conversations, what are like real questions that get honest answers? Because I'm assuming if you value hard work and you ask them if they're hardworking, they're going to say yes. You know, so it's like when you're having these conversations, what are maybe, you know, your skills you use to get true answers and find out about their intangibles? What I like to do is I like to try to ask about and it's kind of goes into the work ethic thing. Cause like you just said, you know, you ask a player, do you like the game? Yeah. Yeah. More guys raise their hand. You know, what I learned is, you know, you got to try to talk to guys about their habits. Like, you know, was your coach hard on you? What was practices like? You know, did he push you? So I think when you're talking to guys, you got to try to figure out, do they love to be pushed? Do they study the game at all? What do they like off the floor? Now I'm not saying a guy that doesn't watch basketball is a guy you don't want to, you know, draft. But it's interesting how, and because I do think sometimes, I mean, when they get older, you know, it's okay to go to movies, go to a mall, read a book, have a life. I'm not saying you just have to be a, yeah. a total team, you know, but you do learn some things in talking to players about the game. You ask them, are they aware of other players? Do they study, you know, do they watch the game? Do they watch film? Do they know different styles? You know, what do they think about other players? Who is the hardest guy they played against? Who is the toughest guy to guard? So I think those kind of questions really open up your mind about them 
about what their experiences are, what they've been through. But I think the biggest thing is that's really, really tough thing to judge is character. So that's why coaches will go to games early and watch a guy warm up. They'll look at his body language on the bench or when he comes out of the game or the, the coachability factor. You want to coach yells at him. What's he like with his teammates? You know, all those little corny things, they're all important. I remember hearing about a great point guard that they said when they watched him, you know, they would watch his teammates and how the teammates reacted to him. Yeah. And they will tell his teammates don't like him. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, a guy's a great talent, you know, and he does give the ball up. And he seems like he's trying to make guys around him better. And they're like, yeah, but if you look, you know, the body language on his teammates, you know, either he's in it for himself or he must act a certain way off the court. There's something about him that bothers his teammates. And it was an interesting little tidbit an NBA guy said to me. I started watching him closer after that, you know, like to try to pick that up. But I think those are all things that I try to flip the coin for a guy that's trying to get ready to try to get looked at and drafted yeah. or to impress and say, look, you're always on that whole thing about if you're only going to work on a day you feel good, you're not going to get a lot done. Yep. Coach, something we've been excited to transition into with this conversation, I'm going from a little bit of evaluating players now to something that I know throughout your career coaching that you've done an unbelievable job of coaching to, recruiting to, but that's pressure and press defenses. And I'd like to get into a tactical, philosophical conversation with you about that. The first thing to get into it is what are the things that you would always think about at the beginning of the season when you were going to implement some type of press or pressure defense? My biggest thing was, you know, I one time I was up at Saratoga Racetrack and I, I love horses and I met Bill Parcells only for like five minutes. And I remember saying to him, hey, coach, you know, I know you're a football coach, obviously, but I'm a fan. And I'm just curious, you know, this was like before, I mean, Belichick was famous, but he was still back in the day. And I said, what are some things you could tell me that would help me as a basketball coach that I could translate, you know, to the game of basketball? And I never forgot this. And he said, Bobby, he said, you know, the little things, you know, like in football, it would be special teams, things like that. And he said, in basketball, it might be, you know, do you got a guy to go get it off the backboard? Or, and, and I translated that to if it's early in the season, you know, the little things that I don't want to miss, the details, whether you're working on getting the ball in bounds. You know, these little things that are parts of the game that nobody really cares about or talks about. You know, I started thinking about in order to press, you got to make the second free throw. If you miss your second free throw, you know, you can't get in the press in terms of at least free throws. So I got maniacal about bringing guys in. And one year we led the nation. You guys could look it up. I still have the NCAA plaque 2004. The team that beat Florida in the NCAA tournament lost to Chris Paul, Wake Forest in the second round, almost went to the Sweet 16. We're the number one free throw shooting team in the country. So going into the season, I would try to figure out all the little things that I think that are so big that I want to cover early. And if I don't get them in, you know, like you could certainly go back to them. But as you guys know, it's always easier to start out a certain way than to have to turn the light switch off and on, you know. So with pressure D, I think the biggest thing to start out with is the conditioning factor. Is it fair to go in and practice a certain way? if they're not prepared to practice that way. So I think that, you know, again, a lot of coaches may not, maybe don't believe in the pressing system because you have to be really committed to it. And it's very, you know, maybe a maniacal, takes a lot of hard work and discipline. It's not just, you know, running up and down, roll the balls out. But the conditioning thing is a hard thing to, to really push. But that was a big factor. If you're going to press, you know, you have to play more bodies, which I think is a good thing because you want to have good depth, be eight, nine, 10 deep, keep more guys happy with playing time. But you also have to, really get them ready to practice a certain way. And then I also think the second part of it, and this is probably with everything, half-court offense, half-court defense, but really with pressure D, you have to be consistent in your rules. We would have to have consistent rules that we wanted to get in early, get them in, teach them, and get good at them. So be consistent with your rules and 
the conditioning factor if you want to be a pressing coach. And I think if you want to be a fast break coach, you know, I think anything to do with the full court style of game, yeah. you know, you have to think about how do you tailor your practices to be up tempo and to use the whole court. And one of the things I learned was if you're going to come in and play full court, fast break offense and pressure defense, here's the last thing I'll mention that, you know, again, Jim Calhoun said to me when I was a young coach, I went up to him and when he was really, really good, they were winning national championships and they used to play the two, two, one. And I was stealing some stuff from him. And I said, coach, I want to be good at like seven things. And he goes, Bobby, here's the thing, man. He goes, when you're a young coach, you think you could be great at everything. He goes, there's no such thing. You can't be a great pressing team along with a great Chris Beard defensive half-court team, Tony Bennett, pack line D, and then great at half-court offense, and then great at fast-break offense, and then the best rebounding, you know, Calvin Sampson going to the offensive glass. It's not possible. So he said, what you have to do is figure out your personality, what you want to hang your hat on, what you want to get good at, and the things you want to get good at, you got to spend time in. When you're a coach, you're going to press. I guess the follow-up, what are the decisions that should go into whether you should be maybe a man press or a zone press? And how much does the personnel of your team dictate that? That's a good question. You know, obviously you want to try to recruit to your system, you know, in college, but sometimes you can't always control who you have. Yeah. And I think there is a myth out there that fast running, high jumping athletes, you know, I think that you can press with slower guys, but here's the key. They have to understand positioning, basketball IQ in terms of where to be on the floor. You have to be connected, all five guys flying around, playing together. So I think that you don't necessarily have to be the fastest, most athletic team in the world, because here's a big key, and me and Dan were talking about this last week, with your pressure thoughts, and this is kind of gets into the man-to-man and the zone type thing. Okay, do I try to make the players play my system and my style that I believe in, or adaptability? Do I adjust a little bit? I do believe in the press, but do I adjust some of my principles and philosophies to my personnel? And I think the second is more important. But with that, I think you can still say, okay, if I have the fastest, most athletic team, maybe I want to use my black and my white, the full court man-to-man matchup presses because we're so gifted physically and athletically. But maybe because we're not as athletic and we're not as deep, maybe I have to use a little more 2-2-1 and 1-2-2 three-quarter court contained because now maybe I'm not just trying to speed guys up and get deflections and steals. Maybe I'm trying to slow guys down and make them use the shot clock. If you play a team that doesn't attack your pressure to score, now what happens is it doesn't cost you anything. You have nothing to lose. So you mm-hmm. can press them. And when they get it over, they pull it back out, run their offense. You're like, okay, you know, you know, they didn't beat us for an alley-oop dunk. Now you're saying, okay, now they got to play against our half-court D. Now the clock went from college game. It went from 35 to 30 in the NCAA. Now maybe the clock's from 30 to 22 or 24. And now maybe that disrupts how many passes they can make on their offense. And now you're playing half-court defense a little less. The main reason I pressed, I used to think to myself, if we're all the same, we're all equal. Now, this was mainly when I was a mid-major coach. I think when you get up at a higher level, you notice guys like Shaka Smart. We was at VCU. Bruce Pearl, who's now at Auburn. Sometimes guys move up a level and they're at a bigger league, better players. They don't press as much. Even Rick Pitino, when he was at Louisville, went away from some of his white and black and got into the 2-2-1, back to 2-3. I always felt at the mid-major level, You have to have something that separates you a little bit from the other teams, like a great equalizer. Mm -hmm. When we played teams that were higher ranked than us, better than us, more athletic, bigger, I didn't want to get put in the meat grinder and just play against half-court offense. I always felt, Pat, if you guys had a seven, like a 6'10", great big guy, and I didn't, and we just played half-court man-to-man D, and you would come down every possession and just carve me up like a porterhouse steak and throw it inside, (laughs) you know what I mean? I was like, man, I I don't want to face their half-court D for 23, 24 seconds, you know, So I always felt like even half court traps or trap out of the zone or, you know, 
trap ball screens or, you know, just something to disrupt the offensive flow because I didn't want to just face your, I always felt like your half court offense right. is probably better than my half court D. But <laughs> yeah. Now maybe, you know, and then the last part of that is I think that pressure changes everything, you know, uh, a quick, funny joke. If it's okay for me to tell one, Please. you know, there was a guy, he learned this line, you know, every day he would hear this loud noise. And when he heard the noise, he was supposed to say, Park, who goes there? So he worked on it every day for three weeks, you know, big noise. He goes, Hark, who goes there? He's like, this is easy. I got this. Night of the performance, curtains open up, radio said music hall, places sold out. All of a sudden, here comes a big bang. The guy goes, holy shit, what the hell was that? <laughs> and, and the moral of that story and that joke, I used to tell our players is, you work on things in practice every day. And you say to your players, when this happens, we're going to do this. When you do this, we're going to do this. If you're not a pressing coach, Dan, and I'm a pressing coach and we do it every day and we believe in it, we're committed to it, and we spend at least 20 minutes a day on it every day because this is what we believe in, I'm going to be better at it than you. And if you have three days to get ready for our game or two days, that's why I always believed it was great in tournament basketball because yeah. you don't have preparation time. I'm going to be better at it than you, but here's the key. Pressure changes everything. The lights come on. Ah, we worked against this press break. We're, this is no big deal. And yes, for the first eight minutes or the first 10 minutes, but after 30 minutes, maybe we got into your legs, the cumulative effect. All of a sudden, the last four or five minutes of the game, you're making mistakes that you might not have made early in the game. Coach, I'd love to pinpoint on a specific part of a decision within a press. Always the the kind of back and forth for me, at least through my career, is should we go one two two on our front or two two one? Specifically with wanting to put pressure on them in the backcourt. What are the decisions that you would make? Why you would choose one of those fronts over the other? What our philosophy was: made basket. We wanted to come with pretty hard pressure, like the two two one, because we felt like we could get in it in time. But made free throw, dead ball, all out hard pressure. Because now we have time to maybe face guard, deny, switch all screens. You know, that was the black press, the white press with a guy up on the ball. You know, the old one, two, one, one, Georgetown, diamond and one. So our philosophy was dead ball or made free throw, hard pressure. Made basket, pretty hard pressure, maybe not as hard, but missed free throw, maybe some one, two, two, three quarter court contain where the guy was on the free throw line, he misses the shot. He's the chaser. The two guys on the foul line, are the top two guys. The two guys that have court are the back guys. So we taught out of a missed free throw, one, two, two zone contained. Then missed shot, turnover, whatever. We didn't press. We just worked on our half court man-to-man D, closeouts, transition defense, load to the ball. So what I tried to push was the press is never off. You're running through lanes. You're trying to get back tips and flicks from behind. And then once you get back, it's all the transition D rules. So I think that with pressure D, where people sort of lose their concept of it is they think, okay, if I'm a pressing coach and I'm a pressure defensive guy and I'm going to come with hard pressure, that means that all the emphasis is on the front of the defense and just trying to get a double team, trying to get a steal. Hey, listen, we can press man-to-man with no trap. We can press man-to-man and all we care about, we would do one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four, five-on-five, whole part whole for the first two weeks with no traps and no flicks. And what we meant by that was, We're strictly working on two things, head on the ball, ball pressure. Number two, stunting, getting in the lanes, fake traps, let them see ghosts. We want the offense to see the help. Our biggest thing was denial. We used to work daily on get on the inside of his body and his inside shoulder. Do not foul. Don't hold his shorts or his jersey, but deny. We want to make it difficult to get it in. We worked with our inbounder on how to play the inbounder. We actually worked on making it difficult to get it in. With the man who's pressuring the inbound pass, what are you telling him 
So what we would do is we would say, okay, listen, you know, we've covered the rules. You know, you can't reach over the line. You got to stay three feet, but voice pressure, meaning I got that. That was a Duke term. I stole, you know, voice pressure. You know, you're yelling, you're, you know, you're screaming, you're up on the ball. We wanted him to know how many timeouts. Sometimes I'd ask him in a timeout. Do you know how many timeouts the other team has? Do you know the arrow if there's a tie up? And I would sometimes quiz our guy that's guarding the inbounder because I actually wanted him to know, can he run? Is it a dead ball? Can he run the baseline? So if he's prepared to guard that guy, almost like he's in a live game. And the other thing we looked at a lot, I used to study the other team's press breaker. And I wanted to know once they get it in, do they go back to the inbounder? If it's a big guy taking it out, we'll let him get it back. And then we'll shut everybody else out, make him bring the ball up. We also would talk to the inbounder about, okay, is he behind the backboard? Is he underneath the backboard? If he's underneath the backboard, if he reaches back, he can't throw a long pass, going to hit the backboard. So see if he's on the right side or left side of the board. 60, 70% of the time, people take it out on the right side because most of the time the guy taking it out is right-handed. So we would tell our inbounder to guard in a way that you're inviting it to the coffin corner and you're inviting it to the short side corner and you're putting your back almost and, you know, asking him, you know, sort of making, you know, just like you would guard an inbounder on an inbound play where you turn mm-hmm. your hips that direction, we would make the inbounder work on that and try to make him pass the ball where you wanted it to. And we talked a lot about when the ball comes in, we don't want him to make advanced passes or the obvious pass, which would be the middle pass. Mm-hmm. So the first pass we want him to make is more of a side pass, a back pass, or as long as it's an air pass, meaning it's in the air and we have time to recover on those. Bounce passes dissect the defense and go underneath the D. They're harder. You know, they make it more difficult for pressing teams. So I think, you know, that's another big key. You know, we wanted long passes. You're vulnerable with diagonal passes. But here's another thing. How many great, you know, you take great players. I mean, Jason Kidd can make a 75-foot diagonal pass against your press, you know, but not every guard can do that. Guys are trapping them. They're trying to corral them. And he throws a 70-foot pass to the guy on a dime that's in that vulnerable spot against your man press or zone press, yeah. you know, try to, you know, play the odds, play the numbers. And I think that we would look at the court, you know, like a boxing ring. We talked a lot of terms about closing down the window, you know, suffocate the offense, make the court smaller, you know, give them less room like a boxer as opposed to a fighter. You know, I want to cut mm-hmm. down the ring, you know, and we talked about these things a lot when we pressed. Coach, less using the press and pressure as like a full philosophy, a full scheme, but how about more special situations where 15 seconds left, you want to trap a great free throw shooter, but not foul them, right? And then you want to foul the next guy out of that first pass. You know, how would you work on, I guess, these more nuanced situations with the pressure and with trapping? So what we did was once we felt like we had all our terminology in and our rules down and our deflection chart, we understood what our goals were and what our rules were. We said, hey, listen, you know, I have to be smart. I learned through the years, you know, you could press more at home sometimes than on the road. Referees don't want to admit that there's a bias there. But when you're at home, you got the crowd. They may let you get away with a little more. Gary Williams told me this from Maryland. He said, Bobby, always press after halftime because guys don't warm up well. And I learned that. Like there was little things that we would do to press once in a great while. Maybe we would turn it off and on. And like I was saying, internationally, that's the way they see the press. They won't do it as a 40-minute panacea, a 40-minute answer for the game over there. They might not be committed to it, work on it in practice all the time, but they like to have it in their pocket over there because I noticed that they'll try to use it where they'll say, okay, there's 18 seconds on the clock. They're taking it out 75 feet and 
there's a timeout situation. We know they're going to run some great stuff. So what I learned is you can use the press over there a little bit, the 2-2-1, just for that one possession here and there to maybe take them out of running that set or for that one possession. So I think you make a good point, Dan, that I believe you don't have to be just a full-time, all-out, believe in it. This is the style. This is what you have to do. To, you have to be a pressing coach. I think you can keep it in your pocket. You could use it almost like people do with some zone. People may do with half-court man-to-man where sometimes they trap the post. Sometimes they trap the ball screen. Sometimes they ice it. Sometimes they switch. Same thing with pressure D. Half-court traps. We used to do this thing called thumbs down and thumbs up. Thumbs up was ball comes over half-court. We're trapping the first sideline pass. That was thumbs up. Thumbs down was ball comes over half court. We're trapping the dribbler, but we're designating a guy. We might say thumbs down three, our three man. He's going to leave their three man. He's going to run and jump the guy. Now, here's what happens. If we already got our rules in on all our press, Mm -hmm. that means that once they get the ball in bounds, whether we're white, whether we're black, whether we're two to one or whether we're contained, all our press rules are the same. We're two on the ball, two in the lanes, and a protector if there's a trap. We're head on the ball, ball pressure, and stunting. We're reading, talking, communicating, connected, all five guys flying around. We're learning how to play and be comfortable in a scrambled situation. So in practice, we're constantly doing five on four, four on three, three on two. We have to play the game in broken down situations and get comfortable with that because that's what happens when you press. You know, you have to get comfortable being tired. You have to, we would do our shooting drills late in practice when their legs were tired so that we learned how to shoot tired and shoot coming out of the press. We would work on shooting drills where we were sprinting up into drills. You know, guys will do drills in practice and they're shooting great. Well, it's stationary or guys are doing moves and they're going against the chair and the chair doesn't jump out at you. You know what I mean? So we would try to, you know, again, incorporate a lot of those things into our style. But again, Pat and Dan, I think the biggest thing that I learned is I think there's a place for it in the game. And even if you don't, you know, have to do it as a system, I think you have to at least be consistent with some rules. And this way you can teach other things easier and say, but we're going to trap out of it or we're going to pressure the ball out of it because now it's already fits with the consistency of your teaching. Well, coach, thank you for going down the, the pressure defense stuff with us and really breaking that down. So many great nuggets in there. So thank you for that. We have a game that we've played on here called Start Subset. And we have another one that we also called Overrated or Underrated. But today we're going to play Over or Under. Okay. And so what we'll do is we'll give you a basketball term or a basketball topic and then give you a number and let you say over or under that number. And then you know we'll have a brief discussion as to why. So to start off with Over or Under 2.5 post moves that a player needs in his toolkit? I would say, believe it or not, under. If you have one great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with the skyhook or, you know, Akeem with the turnaround, two is ideal because you have one and you have the counter. And I think anything beyond that, don't get me wrong, you know, you'd love to have a guy to have Kevin McHale and, you know, there's some guys out there. But I really feel like if you have one go-to move and then maybe a counter when they try to take that away because of scouting, they sit on your inside shoulder, your left shoulder, whatever. So I would say two to me is the way to go. Yeah. And kind of wanted to ask you that question because, you know, with player development and evaluating players, and we talked about trainers and stuff now, and you go into a gym and guys are working on all sorts of moves and counters, and those are all great. But when it comes down to the game and the game on the line, you know, how many do you really need to be successful? So true, Dan. I mean, if you make five dribble moves, you know, into a one-on-one, here's the thing that gets lost. Steph Curry and KD and those guys, I'm not saying they were already great and 
trainers and skill development guys aren't helping them. Of course, really what you're looking at is a painting that's not finished, but it looks very good. And they're adding a little color to, you know, yeah. they, they can add back over the summer or they want to work on this one move off this shot fake and dribble to the side, get away from the guy on the closeout and shoot the three, you know, that mover. They already got like most of the polished product and then they can work and add some things. But I think that what gets lost is, you know, how realistic is it to do certain things and then transfer or translate that to the game? Coach, over, under, seven and a half minutes, individual player video sessions. I'm going to say, again, this may surprise people, I'm going to say under. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because, again, I go by retention, their attention span. I mean, I coach some guys that can't sit still. You know, they're hyper, they're nervous. <laughs> I, I just think, you know, after a couple minutes, you're going to lose them. You know, maybe not after two minutes. I think guys that are disciplined and older and understand they've trained their mind and they've been through, you know, teaching sessions with coaches and they understand you know, the importance of it. Veterans, maybe you're going to get five, six minutes out of them, you know, where they're locked in. But I just think once you get past a certain place, it's all, you know, jumble. They walk out of the court. I mean, I distinctly remember watching like 10 minutes worth of film in the locker room and then going out on the court. And then we walk away and one of the players comes over and he goes, Hey coach, so uh, what are we doing tomorrow? We play man or zone. You know, that just shows you, you know, you know, the kid meant well. He, we just spent like 30 minutes on like every coverage, what socks the other coach is wearing. You know what I mean? The guy says, coach, what defense are we in? You know, I think there's a lot to that. Coach, with the video session, I guess looking at like a broader picture of how are guys learning now? How are guys taking a concept or even a skill? and getting it onto the court. I'm going to give you two very good things. That old saying about, I, I know Fran Fischel says it a lot, you know, I think it's videotape and dice, you know, statistics accuse, videotape convicts, <laughs> you know. Pete Gillen had a line, you know, I worked for Pete Gillen six years, Xavier, Providence, Virginia. He used to say, film does a lot. So I think there's two things with that. The players love to see themselves because they don't believe you when you tell them something. But when they see it's them, first of all, they're locked in because it's them. They're saying, Oh, you know, there's me. They want to watch themselves. So if you do a video thing of them and you show them you know, good plays, bad plays, whatever. And that's the other thing. I think you got to be balanced. You know, can't just be all negative. You might you know, lose them. So I think you got to do yeah. positive and negative and use it for teaching purposes. Explain to them. I'm not attacking your personal, you know, your manhood or your culture, your personality, you know, where you're from. This is coaching, you know, constructive criticism. So I think when they see themselves, they realize that the film doesn't lie because they may say, coach, that's not what happened. I did this and you, you said this, but I didn't. And then they see themselves on film and it's like, so I think that's number one. Number two, huge, huge thing with players today. They all want to make it. They all want to be in the NBA. So first of all, the player development has to be the cornerstone of your philosophy. Even if you're talking to head coach, X's and O. In other words, they all want to get better because they all want to get to the highest level. They all want to become a pro. So I think you got to use pros to teach them. They'll watch. NBA guys, mm -hmm. they'll watch guys that they like. You know, you find out what team do they like or what player do they look up to? Who do they emulate? Whose game do they study? You break down some film footage and some video of those players and you bring it in, I guarantee you, you'll have their attention. And, you know, if I yeah. had to give advice to young coaches today, I would say, listen, the key to any player's part is you have to be able to put time in. Yeah, you got to build a relationship and get to learn about them as a person and as, a, you know, off the court and all that. We talked about that. But I think the key is if you can show that you're invested in getting them better. Like I was asking Larry Brown about coming to the NBA. I said, coach, you think as a former college guy, you know, if I get in the league, you know, guys will be like, well, I never heard of this guy. I never played in the NBA, coach college. So what? College, they talk down to the players. NBA, they talk to the player, you know, different level. He goes, Bobby, here's the deal with the NBA guys. They all want to get better. They'll know in two minutes, you can't fool players. They see right through you. They know if you're 
phony or they know if you're for real coming from your heart. If they see your passion, your energy, and they see you really care about them, you want them to get better, they'll know within one or two minutes if you know what you're doing. And they don't care where you're from, what level you coached at, what you look like and who you are. If you know what you're doing and they'll know if you know what you're doing, they'll respect you and they'll give you that respect within a few minutes. So after that, I always remembered that, that no matter what level I'm teaching, no matter where I am in the world, if you can work with guys and help them get better and show them that you care about helping them get better, you're probably going to reach that player. And I think to capture their attention, video, get back to your question, use them in the film because they watch, because they don't believe what you're telling them until they see it on film. And number two, use the pros and use the guys they look up to because that gets their attention. Coach, my next over or under for you, over or under baseline out of bounds plays you need to have for a season. So the number is 4.5 over or under number of baseline out of bounds plays your team needs. Okay. I've gone under two times in a row. This is my first over. Okay, good. <laughs> Here's what I believed on that. I was maniacal about trying to steal certain baskets and certain points in certain segments of the game. Underneath out of bounds was one of the things that I cared a lot about. We probably had 10, 15, 20 by the end of the year. I loved underneath out of bounds plays and loved trying to execute to score. And I thought that that was an area, if you could get four to six points per game from that under OB situation, baseline OB, that is a huge thing. If then you can add side OB and get a basket or two from there, Now we took it to the next thing. We said, okay, underneath out of bounds, side out of bounds. Let's try to get, you know, six to eight points with those two things combined. Let's try to get two to four points off a missed free throw where we get a tip and a putback as extra possession, an extra rebound off a missed free throw. Let's try to get some extra points off of loose ball error. So I would try to look at the different areas in a game and underneath out of bounds was one of those areas that I tried to look at. We want to beat them in that area. And we kept the step, sure. you know, it might, it might be another area it might be, we want to shoot more free throws than our opponent. You know, we want to get to the line more than them. We want to shoot more free throws than them. Certain things I think where you got to look and try to win that battle, the underneath out of bounds thing, I always thought was a key thing. So I'm going over there. When and how would you work on all of these special situations, baseline out of bounds, like find time and practice to make these all run at a great level? I can run through real quick, you know, and, and this will be a two hour and 20 minute thing and not take two hours, 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> let me, let me, let me check with my wife real fast. Way, we could do that. A little note on that. I flew out to Iowa, did my tapes for championship videos with the one, two, two contain. And they told me the only two guys in the history of filming championship video tapes that flew out there, spent like 15 hours in a row without a glass of water, without food and without going to the hotel and the next day, and then going back to the airport to get on a flight was me and Franny. So there must be something like that. You know, we both coached <laughs> in Manhattan too, but right, we both, so, we're the two yeah, guys yeah. that want to, in the history of Manhattan College, there's only been a couple NCAA wins. It was Franny and me, 10 years in between each other. But anyway, what I want to say is I used to put together a, a practice thing and I've talked about what, like I did an international Zoom clinic about a month or two ago, and it was about how to run a good practice. And basically what we tried to do was we would try to spend 20 minutes on ball handling, shooting, you know, skill work, fundamentals. The next 20 minutes might be half court D. You know, anything with half court man to man D. Next 20 minutes was full court pressure D. That right there is 60 minutes. Next 20 minutes might be half court offense. Next 20 minutes, fast break offense. And then the next 20 minutes might be scrimmaging, open court stuff, things like that. Now that right there is two hours. We're down to the last 20 minutes. The last 20 minutes we would save for special situations, but we wouldn't just do what I learned through the years. And again, stole this a little bit from Larry Brown and some other guys. When I was young coach, 
I would do 10 different scenarios, you know, down three, one minute to go, up two. All these time and score clock management things. As I got older, I realized, forget doing five situations, 10 situations, 12. We're going to take one situation and we're going to work on it for 20 minutes straight. Whether that's give a foul, you know, up three, eight seconds on the clock, up three, four seconds on the clock, up three, you know, that whole debate about, do you want to put the guy in the line or do you want to play good defense and take your chances and not foul? You know, that whole debate, we'd work on that, but we would spend 20 minutes doing it. And we would pick one special situation and just try to really focus on it and spend time on it till we felt pretty good about it. And that was the same thing with that type of thing. So we might say, today, we're just going to work on our underneath out-of-bounds execution. Tomorrow, we're going to work on our half out-of-bounds execution. The next day, we're going to pick some other topic, given a foul. And we try to spend 20 minutes and do it every day or every other day or spread it out. So this way, you know, you're trying to give ample time. But like you said, you know, you're going to shortchange some things. You know what I mean? And again, like trying to be everything to all people. You're probably not going to get to everything and be great at everything if you can try to get your priorities. And then as the season goes along, you know, keep pushing, keep working. Yeah. And then I think from a leadership position, you can't shy away from adversity and conflict. Practice is where you take risk. I think that's where you can make your mistakes and have somebody come in and scout your practice, have somebody come in and do a scouting report on you. You know, go through exhibition games, learn things, make mistakes. Coach, hearing you talk about, of course, earlier, all the different presses and now all the different inbounds. And of course, you know, in the half court, you have sets. Going into, let's say, your first game, what percentage of your offense and your defense like want in? What was the minimum to start with, you know, knowing you'll build throughout the season? Another very good question. We used to try to have maybe 50, 60% of our stuff in by the first game in terms of our pressure D. Uh -huh. We really wanted to have a foundation. We might not have the 2-2-1 two, two, or the 1-2-2 two, two contained in. We might just have the full court man-to-man -man concept and maybe just also with traps. So we would be able to pick up some hard pressure situations on dead balls and made free throws. And then everything else was just going from full court man to half court man. And then on offense, we wanted to be good at fast break offense. My things were pressure defense, Fast break offense, the third thing was, and this is kind of really not an X and O thing, it was playing hard. My hope was if I play against another team and they're smarter than us, they run better offense than us, they're more disciplined than us, they execute better than us, I can live with all that. But if they play harder than us and they want the game more than us, we got a problem. One of the things I think we gave up a little bit was, I'll be honest about this, we ran good stuff in the half court and I cared about running good sets, but I kept mm -hmm. it more simple on half-court offense. That was an area that I said, we're going to try to beat people down the floor, outrun you, get easy baskets, get offense off our defense from the press, and then in the half-court, when they stop us and they, we got to slow it down, quick hitters, simple concepts hmm. on half-court offense. That was an area that, because I felt that if I'm asking them to do so much defensively in the press, and then I'm asking them to remember certain out-of-bounds plays, and then I'm asking them you know, to guard the ball screen this way or guard the post this way, there's got to be an area that I keep a little bit, you know, not so complicated. Yeah. All right, coach. Our last one over or under the number is three, three pick and roll coverages Ooh. on defense. Let me tell you something. You guys really hit on something. I'll tell you why. As a college, I'm going to say, oh my God, is there such a thing as saying even? Because my <laughs> <laughs> you're taking even money, you're taking it. It's a wonder. And I'll tell you why. My actual philosophy as a head college coach, seven years at Manhattan, four years at Seton Hall, was actually three as a college coach. <laughs> when I got international yeah. and I started being in China and Lithuania, it probably went to like five or six because everybody pounds in your head. The Tom Thibodeau thing that he made famous with the Bulls, the ice. I didn't have yeah. that as one of my yeah. three. When I was a college coach, 
we cared about, we would go under where we called pancake and under. The guy guarding the screener would push them up into the screen, go physical, and mm-hmm. then under. So underneath yep. their man and our man, two below, and then recover right away. So we called it pancake and under. That's how we usually would start games. Then we often switched and called that blue, and we would trap. We called that red, and that was our aggressive mindset. So under, switch, and blue, and any time I replaced one of those three, it was with a hard hedge, you know, show. Yep, yep. And we only went into games with three of them, every game, my entire 11-year head coaching career. But then I got to wanting to be an NBA coach, and I went overseas, and everybody pounded the ice and the switching more, the staying in the lane. Jeez, there's probably eight or nine things they talk about in Europe a lot. You know, they probably got eight or nine they talk about a lot and work on all the time. And then go into every game with about five or six that they actually use. I mean, they'll actually use five or six in a game. And I used to think, man, you know, that's too many in one game. They don't know what they're doing. We don't know what they're doing. You know, we're not even sure what we're we're supposed to do, you know. (laughs) But again, like like I said, Lithuania, man, it was a big deal. They would ice the side ball screen, hard hedge on the middle, or push it left. You know, we're going all left in the middle ball screen, ice the side ball screen. Or we're icing left side, we're... Right side over here and left side middle. Are you like three different ball screen defenses on one play? <laughs> Coach, you're off the over under hot seat. That was a lot of fun. I think Pat and I are going to bring that game back. Oh, thank you. And, you know, I feel like I full court pressed you guys today. <laughs> so I came out, I went white. You know, you guys got off the bus and I started pressing, you know? <laughs> yeah. we're, we're using our retreat dribble a lot. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We got one more kind of wrap up question for you here. Before we do, really thank you for coming on and being so open and sharing everything today. It was yeah. really fun to hear your thoughts and learn from you. So thank you oh, for that. You guys too, man. Listen, I'm rooting for you guys. I'm pumped up that I got to know you guys. I'll be uh, promoting your site anytime I get a chance, you know, or whatever. And I'm you. doing Zoom clinics or when I'm overseas, wherever, you know, if I can help you guys in any way. I don't know. You guys, you know what you have to do? You have to get some gear. You know, get some get some slapping glass hats and t-shirts made. We got some t-shirts and coffee mugs that just arrived, so we got some. We'll, yeah, we'll send you one. Send me one. But, any, but anyway, no, I, I've enjoyed it. And if I can help, you know, in the future, I don't know what I can do, but you know, would love to help in any way. Thank you, Coach. We appreciate that. And we you. appreciate the kind words. To kind of close here, it's a question that we ask a lot of coaches on here at the very end. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? I think that it's probably not being afraid to talk to older coaches and people with experience, you know, don't be afraid of experience, you know, embrace it. You know, even when I was like a young guy, I mean, you know, my father died when I was 18 years old, he died of cancer. And I think a lot of people thought, Oh, you know, you're always looking for a father figure. You know, you're always talking to these older guys about wisdom and advice. You know, and I think that's why I got so friendly with Garth and Sonny McCarroll early on when I was a high school coach. I just think I always, not that I needed a mentor or I leaned on older guys, but I just think that the one mistake, and I made a lot of mistakes as a young coach, even when I wasn't afraid to listen to older guys with wisdom, you know, but I just think you got to invest in, you know, relationships with people that have experience that have been around. If I could do it over the one area that I didn't try to push to learn better would have been how to handle the media. Now, young guys come along, they know about all this. They're used to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's a whole new world, but 10 years ago, you know, when I was coaching, I went from the Mac to the Big East. 
Everybody wasn't so skilled, even the Hall of Fame guys. You know, they weren't sure, you know, do I hire an assistant to handle the internet? You know, what do we do here? You know, it was a learning thing for everybody, you know, and I, and I made yeah. some mistakes in that area that I think cost me a little bit as a young college coach. But again, you live, you learn, yep. you grow, you get better, you know, and you move on. Coach, I want to just follow up on one quick thing that you said at the beginning. You talked about when you were younger, you would seek the advice of some older coaches around you. I'm wondering what types of advice that you got early on as a coach that has really stuck with you through all your years? A couple of things. Pete Dillon, who I worked for for six years at Xavier Providence, Virginia, is retired now. He works for CBS. He always used to say, Bobby, you're coming up like a space shuttle. You're moving so fast. You know, you talk fast. You know, he was the one that joked, said, you make coffee nervous. You know what I mean? He made that line famous. Every article <laughs> they did on me, they used to say that. My wife didn't like it, so I stopped saying it. But anyway, what Pete Dillon mm-hmm. told me was, he said, Bobby, enjoy the ride. You know, the best job is the one you have. You know, don't be in a hurry. And that was great advice he gave me. Then when I got to the college level and I wanted to become a winning coach and learn how to be successful, and I started picking guys' brains about style of play and what works and you know all of that, Rick Pitino said something to me that I'll, I never forgot. And he said, Gonzo, don't worry about you know money or fame or any of those things. Chase winning, chase winning. And he said, if you chase winning and everything that has to do with winning, the money and all that other stuff will follow. If that's what you care about, if that's what you want, that will follow but Chase winning. And I never forgot that because he said it to me when I went to Manhattan because he said, because I remember saying to him, I said, man, coach, I said, you know, I'm the top assistant at Virginia, you know, Dick Vitale, all these guys are pumping me on ESPN. They're saying I'm one of the best recruiters in the country. I'm like, I'm going to go to Manhattan and become a head coach in the Mac. I'm actually going down in salary. I'm actually going to take a loss financially to be a head coach. And he said, Gonzo, listen, man, you're going to win there. You're from New York. You know how to recruit that area. Program's down. You can win. Chase winning and the rest will follow. And you know what? I never forgot that he was right. You know, I went from, you know, the Mac to the Big East and, and now internationally and it helped me travel the world. And of course, meet my wife, you know, all these great things that come out of basketball. So those were a couple pieces of advice that older coaches gave me. The last one, you know, was kind of a, you know, Jerry Tarkanian, you know, he said to me, hey, Bobby, the game's changing. You know, there's not many characters in coaching anymore. You know, it's all becoming sort of like vanilla and very uh, cookie cutter. You know, what happens is, you know, you got to try to adjust again, adaptability. But he talked about how the game changes and the perception, but perception can sometimes be bigger than reality. But, you know, you yourself have to care more about, you know, that John Wooden thing, you know, character is not what people say you are. It's who you really are, you know, and and that's the thing that I think in the last 10 years that really helped me the most, because once you go through where you stumble and go through some adversity, I think that's really when you grow and learn is when not saying you can't grow and learn from success. You do. But I think, you know, everyone knows that when you really become a rounded person or I think a a more complete person is when you know what it's like to struggle or when you you either way you've been fired, you know, you know, everyone's great when things are great. You know, when you lose or when you make mistakes or, you know, that's when you really learn the character of somebody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please visit slappingglass.com for more information on the membership, free newsletter, videos, and more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>